Hello and welcome to a special bonus edition of High Heels and Heartache. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Bird. Initially, I thought that I was going to only be doing one episode a month this summer, but recently I found out that June is Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Awareness Month, and I felt like it was super important um, to get out some information about post-traumatic stress disorder for survivors of abuse and domestic violence. Because post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is very common in survivors of abuse. And it actually was something that I had to deal with in my own recovery. And to be perfectly honest, it was a huge hurdle for me. Part of that was because I was just really ignorant about what PTSD was, um, who could develop PTSD, what were the symptoms. Um, I I didn't see myself as someone who could possibly have this condition, and I had it. Um, so once I was educated by a therapist about what was going on in my brain and how that was affecting my body, it really helped me in my recovery. So my hope is that after listening to this episode, you have a better general understanding about what PTSD is um, and how it does affect the lives of those people who are working through it. Um, My guest today is Crystal Yarborough, and she's a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical addiction specialist. She's worked with people who have experienced trauma and addiction in a lot of settings, including a state psychiatric hospital, of residential substance abuse therapeutic community, in military settings, and also in outpatient clinics. And she gives a lot of really great information about, again, what is PTSD, what are the symptoms, and what recovery looks like. And I'm super excited that she's on the podcast today. So coming up, my interview about PTSD and survivors of domestic violence with Crystal Yarborough. My guest today is Crystal Yarborough. Hi, Crystal. Hi, Kendallian. We're very lucky to have Crystal with us today because she uh, works for Aspire Counseling and she helps survivors of trauma. So today we're going to be talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and she's going to give us a lot of information about what survivors can do in order to help in their recovery from their post-traumatic stress. So my first question is, what is PTSD? So thank you, Kindleland, for having me, particularly uh, this month. So June is PTSD Awareness Month, and so I am certainly happy to have the opportunity to talk about PTSD and what it is. So PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And if we look at each word individually, it gives us insight into what this disorder is. And so it's an after-trauma stress disorder. So basically... PTSD occurs after somebody has been through a traumatic experience and they have a number of symptoms that are very common for people after they've gone through a trauma, 
But for some people, they persist a little bit longer than they do for other trauma survivors. And if they have these symptoms for at least uh, three months, then we would consider it a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what the diagnosis is. And so first, there has to be a trauma. Something has to have happened to the person. And sometimes when we think about trauma and PTSD, we only think about this being a disorder that impacts our veterans. Mm -hmm. Certainly we do know that our veterans are at a higher risk of PTSD because of their jobs. They are certainly exposed to a number of traumatic experiences in combat or sometimes as a part of their military experiences, also including military, military sexual trauma. But PTSD is not a disorder that is only experienced by our veterans. Civilians often experience PTSD. They just don't always get the same access to screening and diagnosis as our veterans. And I think that that's a really important point because I, before I had a therapist tell me, you have PTSD, I didn't think that I was able to have it. I thought that domestic violence almost didn't qualify as a big enough trauma in order to be considered someone dealing with post-traumatic stress. That makes a lot of sense. And unfortunately, in our civilian population, um, people don't always understand the symptoms and don't know that they perhaps could be um, a person who has a PTSD diagnosis. Um, one of the other factors is uh, knowing what qualifies for a trauma. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, the first criterion in order to have a PTSD diagnosis, again, is to have a trauma. So certainly combat or military sexual trauma could be criterion, meet criterion A, which is the first thing that we look at when we make a diagnosis as a clinician. Um, but there are other types of traumas, certainly car accidents, natural disasters, uh, First responders, uh, people who, police officers, firefighters, people who have chronic exposure to trauma are at a greater risk, but also people who have relationship trauma, people who have witnessed or survived uh, interpersonal violence mm -hmm. certainly can be at a greater risk for PTSD. Uh, and so I think it's important to also consider that in our civilian population, women tend to have a higher rate of PTSD than men because of the likelihood of being involved in a relationship that may have interpersonal violence. In addition to sexual abuse, child abuse, all of these things can qualify as a traumatic event. So it is something in your life <clears throat> that you have either witnessed or survived that has made that has traumatized you. And it it depends on the person if they're traumatized or not. So maybe you saw something that has traumatized you. Maybe you yourself have lived through something that has traumatized you. But it's not necessarily you went to war and then you came back. There's a wide range of things that traumatizes people. There can certainly be a wide range of experiences that people have that could be traumatic. Uh, often with our diagnostic criteria, we look at things that could be life-threatening or involve death or serious injury. Okay. Um, but one of the things that's new to the diagnosis in the DSM-5 is that also learning about events that happened to a person that you loved could also oh. qualify as being traumatic. So for example, perhaps getting word that a loved one was in a combat zone and hearing the details about that, or certainly after 9-11 and people witnessed uh, 
all, a lot of the news coverage, but also people who had family members mm-hmm. involved in 9-11 certainly could be, were at a greater risk for developing PTSD as well. So once people have either survived a trauma or witnessed a trauma, what are some of the symptoms that they might find in themselves that could be markers of post-traumatic stress disorder? So after there has been a traumatic experience, people may develop nightmares or flashbacks where they feel as if the event is reoccurring again. They may have triggers or reminders of the event. So they may experience uh, the event all over again if something reminds them of, a, of what happened. So it could be a smell, something that they see, a physical characteristic of someone. Um, it can be a noise. Mm-hmm. Um, but any reminders that people have could certainly lead to them reliving the event. Um, a lot of times with night, people's nightmares, they're also uh, reliving the event through their dreams. Mm. And often these dreams are very scary, very graphic, um, and very distressing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say the thing about sound. Um, because when I went to leave my abuser, um, he attacked me. And before he did that, he threw a chair onto a desk and it made a very loud noise. And sounds became huge triggers to me in my recovery. Um, About a month after the attack, I went to um, kind of a carnival with my niece and my nephew and my mom. And there was a game there where you shoot water in like the face of a clown and a balloon pops. Like clowns aren't scary enough. They need (laughs) loud noises associated with them. But when I heard the balloon pop, Something happened in my body. I started to sweat. Uh, my heart was racing. And I, f- I had the sense of, for some reason, in those couple minutes after that, I could not tell what was a threat and what wasn't a threat. And I felt like I was like drowning in just air because I just felt like the world was closing in on me. So are those some of the physical symptoms that people tend to to tell you about when they are dealing with PTSD? Absolutely. Unfortunately, your description of your experience is a very common one for people who have experienced trauma, that there may be some sound that reminds them of the experience, but that that actually prompts the next category of symptoms, which we call the hyperarousal cluster. So this is really kind of the anxiety response. So a lot of people will have, as a result of re-experiencing the trauma, an increase in their heart rate. They often feel like they're in danger. They may become very sensitive to their surroundings. They may scan the environment looking for danger. Uh, Again, they may feel as if something bad is really going to happen. So it's that activation of their fight, flight, or freeze response. And what happens for a lot of trauma survivors is because their brain is frequently assessing that there's a threat, um, when there may not there may no longer be a threat, but if their brain is constantly telling them that they're in a threatening environment, then that fight, flight, freeze response is constantly being activated. Mm-hmm. And so like your exaggerated startle response is a very common symptom of PTSD where people may hear something or may be startled very easily and have a really difficult time kind of coming back to baseline. And you, you said something there that I, is new for me. You didn't just say 
fight or flight. You said fight, flight, or freeze. And I think that that's sort of a new thing that that we are all accepting is that it's not just fight or flight. It's also freeze. So can you explain kind of those three different things in your body and what's going on in your brain when you're deciding which one to do? Absolutely. So basically what happens is when our brain assesses that we are in uh, a threatening situation, it very quickly assesses which response would be best to keep you safe. Sometimes a fight response would be the safest thing. So perhaps if we are being attacked by someone and if we think that that would be the way that we can survive, then we would go into a fight response. We may fight back. Sometimes our brain assesses that the safest thing for us is to be able to flee the situation, to get out, to run. Um, And that very well may be the case as well. One of the other responses that people sometimes do not appreciate is that our brain might assess that the best thing for us in that particular situation is to freeze. And Mm. so it basically puts us in a very paralyzed state momentarily because that might be what our brain tells us will be the safest response. And for a lot of people, particularly people who've been through traumatic relationship uh, difficulties like interpersonal violence, the freeze response may be the one that's activated the most. That's so interesting because I always thought those people who weren't fighting or fleeing, that they actually what they were experiencing was like shock. I never thought that maybe their brain was telling them, hold on a second here. You know, like I, I just, the, I didn't know that that was, as weird as it sounds, an option for the brain. Certainly there can be an element of shock involved as well, but our brain may assess that freezing may be the best situation that, uh, or the best option for a situation because fighting or fleeing may also be very dangerous for us. Oh, that's a good point. And so sometimes people get really frustrated with the freeze response because it feels as if they wish that they would have done something differently. But part of the reason that our brains go to freeze sometimes is that that becomes the best assessment of the situation. So for example, uh, for people who may be victims of sexual abuse, chronic sexual abuse, the fighting or the fleeing response may not always be the safest response for them mm-hmm. in that particular situation. And so they may learn to freeze. And what happens for many people when they freeze is what's called dissociation, that they kind of leave their body, so to speak. Um, so they kind of escape or check out in order to be able to kind of withstand the the assault or the, the violence that or the trauma that's occurring to them. Because their brain has assessed... This trauma that that you have been exposed to before is too much for you. And so it's almost like your brain knows it's got to shut itself down. Absolutely. In order for you to be able to live the next day. To live the next day. And so because these responses are all a part of our survival system, our brain is trying to give us the best option at survival. Mm, that's, re- that's really good information. So we've talked about, okay in order to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, you've had a trauma happen to you or you've witnessed it um, or maybe a loved one has had a trauma. You have physical symptoms. um, And then there's this, this other one that always makes me kind of chuckle because when I was talking to my best friend, 
when I was in recovery, sometimes she said on some days I acted like a chainsaw. Like I was so irritable Mm -hmm. that I was just sort of like chainsawing my way through the day. And now looking back, I see that there are some kind of changes to your personality that occur in your recovery. So can you kind of talk about what that sort of chainsaw <laughs> was was happening with me. So certainly we know that because um, people are perhaps experiencing the activation of their flight, fight, their flight, fight, or freeze response <laughs> very frequently, um, that there are a number of reasons that the irritability can be there, but that is often one of the symptoms of PTSD. Um, irritability, and sometimes people have really strong anger outbursts. But the irritability and the anger are there for a couple of other reasons that could be other symptoms of PTSD. So for some people, because of that hyperarousal, they don't sleep well. Um, oh, yeah. They don't sleep constant or throughout the night. So they Especially may- if you're having nightmares and you're waking up and you're remembering your nightmare. I mean, everybody can relate to... you. It's hard to sleep after a bad nightmare. Absolutely. So all of these symptoms tend to trigger other symptoms and create difficulties with functioning. So with the irritability, of course, if you're having nightmares or if your trauma happened at night, you may be more aware or hyper aware at night than you would be during the day. So it may be that sleep issues play a big role in how people feel the next day. So if you didn't get enough rest or perhaps if you were anxious and hyper alert for most of the evening or if you're scanning or watching um, your environment, looking outdoors and windows, then you're probably not getting a lot of rest. And so that irritability might be a symptom of that. One of the other things that we also know about people if they've experienced trauma is that it's also really difficult to um, tolerate your emotions. Sometimes people have um, what we call emotional numbing which is an avoidance symptom, but they kind of shut down emotionally where they may not fulfill a full range of emotions, but they may feel more irritability and anger because those feel like emotions that give us more energy to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Especially if you feel like you've had a loss of control. Having an anger, it helps you then maintain control of whatever is kind of going on around you. Absolutely. So part of what people often try to avoid is that feeling of being out of control. So if you are constantly feeling as if you have to be in control of your environment, that takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And so again, you might often just be irritable because you don't have that energy. But again, anger and irritability kind of give us at least the illusion that we have more control over our situation than we may. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I, and it kind of all works together in the, if you're having to, if your brain is assessing at all times, am I going to fight? Am I going to flight? Am I going to freeze? Yes. Like your brain is probably like, I need a break. And it would yeah. all work to be being irritable. And what happens is you're exactly right. But what happens for a lot of trauma survivors is that they feel like they don't know how to relax. Yeah. They don't know how to come down from that constant state of hypervigilance and hyperarousal. And so even feeling as if their body is worn out, mm-hmm. for some people, relaxation may also mean that they're opening themselves up to threat. Yeah. And that's like that's the way that I felt. And I had a therapist that would say to me, what are you doing to help yourself relax? And I said, I can't possibly be... E- get to relax or calm because I can't even get to my body to settle yet. 
like I felt like being relaxed and calm was like the next step. And I couldn't even get myself just to not feel like my shoulders needed to be tight and I needed to be looking. So that's really interesting that you say that because it it, it does feel impossible to just take a deep breath and just, yeah. you know, breathe out the, the all the anxiety that you're feeling. And for some people, um, that also means that letting their, or they feel that letting their guard down means that they're not assessing for danger. So that invites the um, it allows somebody room to come in and hurt you if you're not being aware. Because if you've been traumatized, you think about, well, look what happened last time. Exactly. When I, guard down. yeah, when I wasn't ready, someone got me. And so mm-hmm. I need to always be ready because that can't happen again. Which certainly that level of wear and tear on the body mm-hmm. certainly creates a lot of functional impairment down the road mm-hmm. when we're not able to relax or get rest. I think one thing that it would be important for our listeners to hear, because it was something I struggled with, is that there there is a difference between if you normally have an elevated level of anxiety and post-traumatic stress. Because my whole life, I've always been just kind of a worrier or an anxious person, so Part of the hurdle of my PTSD recovery was learning that, Kendall Ann, this isn't just your normal heightened anxiety. This is way off the scale. So can you talk about like how just heightened anxiety and PTSD are different? So it can be really hard to figure out, especially if you had anxiety prior to the trauma, uh, if you're having PTSD reactions. One of the things to remember about PTSD is it's a post-trauma stress mm-hmm. disorder. So anytime you feel that after a trauma, you've had some changes as a result of the traumatic experience, then that might be related more to PTSD. Certainly people may have pre-existing conditions where maybe they were depressed or anxious before, but any way in which they are different as a result of the trauma then we might group that as being more related to their okay, PTSD so diagnosis. What you're saying there is it would be common for someone who had anxiety before the trauma, if they had like a big meeting at work the next day, it would be kind of sort of their the way that they operate, that they would always be worried the night before a big meeting. They would always be kind of sure. doing their checklist right. in their minds, maybe getting up and making sure their computer is in their bag uh-huh. or that they have everything printed out. But after you've been exposed to a trauma element, there is no way to turn that off. You are there kind of thinking about the trauma that happened to you and not the meeting that's going to be taking place the next day. You may be in that situation more concerned about assessing danger. Okay. And thinking about how safe are the people going to be and what's going to happen if I feel trapped and I can't get out of this room. So the anxiety that many people face after a trauma is more related to, again, assessing for a threat, particularly around their safety and well-being. So you're not worried in the meeting tomorrow, is the computer going to work? You're worried tomorrow when I'm in the meeting, Am I going to be safe in the meeting? You may be more worried about safety. Certainly, you still may have issues um, around uh, worst-case scenario thinking, catastrophic thinking. So what's the worst that can happen? But for trauma survivors, usually the worst that can happen is more related to 
something around their safety and well-being. So if you just have heightened anxiety, your catastrophic idea is that the computer dies. Sure. But when you are ha- when you're experiencing PTSD, the catastrophic is something happens to you, to your you. body to your body or to your well-being, something that is a threat. So you are in a, your brain tells you that you have to constantly assess for the threat of danger. Will these people hurt me? Or what if something bad happens? How will I get out of this room? Or what if, maybe even what if I have a panic attack and I have oh, that's a good point. breathing? So it's more around your physical and emotional safety versus for a person who just has anxiety, I want to say just has anxiety because we know that's a significant experience as yeah. well. But the catastrophic thinking may be more along the lines of um, kind of situational bad things happening that kind of make this maybe more embarrassing or yeah. uncomfortable versus a safety issue. That's a really good point. And those, I, I think that when you when we talk them out, you can see that there's a difference. But again, when you're kind of in it, You can't see it until it's pointed out really to you. Absolutely. And you may still have the same physiological reactions as a person who has anxiety because our body kind of responds in the same way. So beating, racing heartbeat and sweaty palms and muscle tension, but your brain may be assessing things a little differently based on your experiences. So when you are recovering from post-traumatic stress and your clinician is telling you, hey, you know, I think that maybe the, what's going on here is that you do have post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you tell me about what, what clinicians do for the survivors that helps them in their recovery from the PTSD? So before I answer that question, I want to go back a little bit and talk about maybe some more of the symptoms so that that oh, yeah. uh, treatment, uh, some of the treatment options may make a little more sense. Okay. So in addition to the re-experiencing symptoms, so reliving it, the nightmares, the flashbacks, the intrusive memories, people also may have the hyperarousal symptoms. So we just discussed those, the anxiety, the um, difficulties sleeping, the exaggerated startle response, the irritability, the hypervigilance, being aware. But because a lot of times people have that strong anxiety, Mm -hmm. they may start to avoid certain things. So part of what they avoid may be some of the reminders about the trauma. So they may not want to talk about it. They may try to push those memories away. They may not want to kind of be around anything that slightly reminds them Mm -hmm. of the trauma. So... um, For some people, it may be perhaps if someone had a car accident, they may have some avoidance of riding or driving cars for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea is that anything that produces that level of anxiety that they're reminded of, that they want to kind of get away from. And sometimes that also includes emotions. So people may want to avoid some of those really strong emotions, the sadness, the despair, any of the other emotions that may be there. And so a lot of times people may become very restricted in the range of emotions that they're able to feel. Um, Sometimes people feel, again, more irritability and anger. Sometimes people may feel really stuck in depression. Mm -hmm. Um, Or sometimes people just may feel kind of blah. They don't feel a lot of anything. Mm -hmm. Even when good things happen or maybe they are doing things that they used to enjoy, sometimes they don't get the same emotional feeling. And this can really have a big impact on their relationships. Um, They may avoid people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will avoid crowds of people because they may feel that crowds 
increase your risk of being involved in a dangerous situation. It's more to scan. There's more variables. More people to check for, more variables. If they are in situations, they may... um, that may involve a crowd. They're often close to doors or exits. Um, If they go to restaurants, perhaps, they may sit in a place where they can either see the surroundings and assess threats, or they may sit very close to uh, an exit. Um, Or they may start to avoid those activities altogether because the scanning and the anxiety behind it feels like it's too much. So people over the course of time may start to live very narrow lives um, that everyday things may feel like they're really overwhelming. Going to the grocery store, going to the mall or to the movies. Um, because those- it's like your bubble is getting smaller and smaller. Your- so so even in before maybe you didn't really like going to restaurants because there was too much kind of stimulus. Mm-hmm. So you've eliminated that. And by eliminating that, now the grocery store is a lot of stimulus. Absolutely. Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So it starts to become, become a, like you said, a, a, a bubble that people start to get themselves into. For some, certainly mm-hmm. not every person has every symptom of PTSD. Everybody's symptoms may be slightly different, but there may be a level of avoidance for many people with people, places, things, activities, and any trauma reminders, but particularly those emotions. Um, so it's not uncommon that people will start to pull away even from their family and friends. Um, and depending on what their trauma is, they may also lose interest in sex or intimacy in relationships. They may have difficulties trusting other people, um, particularly people who've survived interpersonal violence, because trust is such an important ingredient of our relationships. And if Uh, someone that they cared about violated their trust via the abuse, certainly it becomes really difficult for them to trust other people. And and those people have used your trusting them almost against you. It's become your weakness that you trusted them with really your life. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to, you know, how do you know who to trust if you've made such a big error? which is a really difficult thing to do, to reestablish <laughs> if you're a trauma survivor, to, to learn how to trust yourself, how to trust other people, how to trust that a situation that you're in is safe. And so what happens is as people start to avoid, they may also start to notice changes in their feelings and their thoughts. Mm-hmm. They may start to kind of make generalizations. So the world is unsafe. Um, all people are dangerous. You can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And so part of what happens is that as people start to have these thoughts that change about themselves, about other people in the world, their emotions also change. So they may feel, again, very numb or very anxious or depressed or irritable and angry as a result of these thoughts. And again, may start to really have uh, impairments in how they function. So these symptoms tend to start to take over. Yeah. And they often interfere with people living the type of life that they want to live. Because it would be hard to to go to work and to do what you needed to be a professional if you feel like people cannot be trusted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so and and if you're in those environments and have a great deal of anxiety, it becomes really difficult to concentrate and focus and to remember things. So even people's memories sometimes are impacted by the trauma, Um, particularly as people are very hypervigilant. Sometimes they're scanning and maybe information doesn't get in the way that it, it used to. 
Um, I work with a lot of people who say that they get into conflicts with their loved ones because their their loved ones may say, you remember when I told you blah, 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 and we had this whole conversation. And the person doesn't remember any of it because their brain was somewhere else. Because the, all of the space that would be used on digesting what you're telling me is now being used on, am I safe? Is there something around here that I need to be careful or maybe even protect you from while you're telling me something? I need to be looking out for you and me in this situation. And that's a really good point that many trauma survivors are not only assessing danger from themselves, but they're also assessing danger for their loved ones. So how safe will my child be in this environment? Or should I, if I go to the pool with my child, will somebody hurt them? And so sometimes their loved one's lives also become a little more narrow because of the hypervigilance and the desire to keep them safe. So it comes from a very genuine place the difficulty is that it just impacts the quality of life that people often have as a result of these symptoms. Oh, I had never really thought of that. And those people might be suffering kind of their own kind of post-traumatic stress because maybe they witnessed the interpersonal violence between two parents mm-hmm. or two loved ones. And now their mom or their dad is also kind of almost reestablishing that everything is to be feared. Yes. And so that sense of secondary traumatization can be a very real experience for a lot of family members in terms of watching their loved ones experience their trauma reactions Mm -hmm. and then ways that those trauma reactions impact other people. So um, it, it certainly can be that other people also develop some anxiety around situations or triggers or uh, their brains may start to also be very sensitive to perceiving threats as well. Hmm. So it's important that if, if you're feeling any of these ways or maybe your child or a loved one is pointing out to you that you are acting irritable or excitable or you're not wanting to do things that you used to want to do, that you, you do need to address it. Absolutely. These symptoms don't go away on their own. So after people have experienced these these um, after people have experienced a trauma, many times they will have these symptoms that will dissipate over time. So not every person who's been through a trauma has PTSD. And I want to make that very clear. There are lots of people who don't go on to develop uh, a post-traumatic stress disorder after their trauma. But for people who do, um, these symptoms often don't just go away on their own without some type of active involvement in getting better via treatment, meeting with a a mental health provider, even with your primary care doctor, which is a great start in terms of being linked to uh, understanding these symptoms. Mm -hmm. And and what do those professionals do with you to help in your recovery? So certainly there are many different treatment approaches out there, Um, but some of the core things would be first to develop some coping skills. So once people are aware of their PTSD diagnosis, learning how to cope with some of the symptoms is often a place where many people start. So learning how to deal with the anxiety, how to reduce the anxiety through whether it's breathing exercises or learning to accept the anxiety response 
through mindfulness, but basically being able to manage the, the symptoms, learning to reestablish trust. And that can be a, a really significant aspect of therapy, which is to develop a trusting relationship with the treatment provider. Yeah, because that would be like the first... I mean, you're being so vulnerable when you're telling your provider about what you've yes. been through, but it, that's kind of working in your favor of seeing that there are people who are good and there are people that you can trust that aren't going to hurt you. So one of the biggest steps is really for people to come into therapy to first feel a level of comfort with their provider. And mm. our hope is that when they're able to establish some trust in that relationship, which for some people could take some time, that eventually they will be able to generalize that trust in other places. Now, the key isn't to to go into all or nothing patterns. We don't <laughs> want people to either trust no one or to trust yeah, everyone. But we really want to help people to learn how to perhaps be more thoughtful, um, perhaps learning that there are different ways to, of establishing trust um, and that not every person may deserve the same level of trust as someone else would deserve and how to be very mindful about those experiences. Um, so that often is a very big first step. That, which is an important one. And it's a very difficult one. Yeah. Especially when people have been hurt by other people in relationships. Yeah. It can be really difficult to establish trust with any other person. Yeah. So once that trust is established and you're speaking to people about how they're going to cope with these anxiety feelings, this depression, this kind of narrowing of their bubble, tell me the things that you've sort of seen as indications of that the recovery is working for the people who are dealing with the post-traumatic stress? So certainly everybody's recovery will look different because people are really different. And there are several different uh, therapy approaches that are effective. But some of the signs of, uh, some of the common signs that you can see that people are actually able to um, establish trust and maybe work through some of their issues um, related to their trauma may be in, uh, people talking about some of the details of the trauma and processing some of the emotions um, and being able to process and discuss the emotions and their reactions in a way where they're feeling not completely overwhelmed or completely numb. Okay. So being able to have the ability to kind of regulate and modulate their emotions so that they can actually kind of sit with them without having the need to avoid them or push them away. So that's kind of... Um like um, a medium between your sort of over like stimulus from yes. it of like the reliving it or right. the turning it completely off right. that you're able to kind of find the middle ground here uh -huh. of this is what happened to me. These are my emotional kind of reactions to it. And I'm okay with these emotional reactions because they're not, either making me shut down all emotions or making driving me to the point of I'm afraid of everybody and I don't want to leave my house. Yes. So we're hoping to really help people to find ways of living a meaningful life again um, so that they're not avoiding their emotional experiences, that they're not avoiding aspects of their lives that they really want to be able to do. 
based on their trauma reactions. And so that may also entail little by little helping people to reconnect with the things that are important, helping them to reconnect with loved ones or activities, um, and helping them to learn how to be more flexible in their responses to people. Uh, Certainly there are um, uh, lots of ways in which people can hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And so we're all human and we all may be at a risk for being hurt again, but how to be able to establish relationships um, and also use assertive communication skills. How do you set those boundaries? What are some of the warning signs that you may need to pay attention to so that you're not repeating certain patterns? Um, So some of these are things that we do in some of these aspects are treatment, um, like indicators that show you, okay, this person seems to be sort of coming out of this post-traumatic kind of, I don't know what else to call it, but a bubble, because that's the way that I felt. Yeah, I think I think a bubble is a good a descriptor for it. And I think part of it is that we do want people to be able to be more um, functional in their lives in whatever way that is for them. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that you've mentioned before is that you're not just... Um, it, it's not like these bad traumatic things have happened to you and now your whole life is like before the trauma and now post-traumatic stress, whatever. But being able to get to the point of post-traumatic growth. So can you tell me what is post-traumatic growth? So post-traumatic growth is a construct or um, an experience that some people have as a result of their trauma in which they've grown in ways that they would not have prior to the trauma. And so um, there were some researchers, Tadishi and Calhoun, out of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, who proposed this concept of post-traumatic growth several years ago. But the idea is that after a trauma, some people may, again, experience uh, things that they would not have prior to the trauma in the ways of spiritual growth or personal change. Maybe they have new opportunities to do things that they wouldn't have before. Maybe they're connecting with people in a different way. They may have a different sense of spirituality or meaning uh, on their lives that they would not have had prior to the experience. Um, People may also have new possibilities. They may see themselves doing something very different than the way that they would have thought that their lives would have unfolded. So one of the things that's important to remember about post-traumatic growth is that it does not necessarily mean that people may not also have some trauma reactions. So they, that's not saying that the trauma was good for them, or it's not saying that they would not have had some of the PTSD symptoms. So it's not an all or nothing. It's but not it's, like the, the PTSD is erased. It's not that the PTSD is erased, but it's just the idea that people can have some positive reactions to, in addition to like you feel like you want to pay it forward in your life, so you start a podcast. I kind of <laughs> think that this is an example of post traumatic growth, Kindleland. That you've had an experience that has perhaps changed you in ways that you now want to maybe connect with other people, or give back, or. Um, maybe educate people about something based on your experiences. So again, this could be a great example of how somebody can perhaps experience post-traumatic growth. And not everybody experiences post-traumatic growth in the same ways 
either. So people may have one area of growth and maybe not others. Other people may experience growth in um, a number of different areas. Like maybe you you feel more empathy towards people or maybe not even you're not as judgy as you used to be. Or maybe you are going to a support group where you meet people who've been through what you've been through. Or maybe you are more appreciative of life. Uh, and maybe you're doing things that you wouldn't have done as a result of the trauma. Maybe you're trying to reach other people in a way that maybe you didn't think about before. And I, I think that, that that's important to recognize that um, because of the way that society and media has kind of presented post-traumatic stress disorder, it's easy to, as a survivor to feel like, I don't want to have that. I, I don't want that label on me because it feels like there's something really wrong with you. So I think that that's an important part is that it's, it's not a label that is going to define you. Absolutely not. And, and part of the challenge with PTSD awareness is debunking a lot of the myths. And so a lot of times when people think about PTSD, they think about aggression and violence. And um, many people think, oh, that means that someone's crazy. I even hate saying it mm-hmm. that way. But most people with post-traumatic stress disorder are not violent, are not at a higher risk of violence towards other people. But again, if we look at the definition, it's an after trauma anxiety response. So as a result of what people have been through, the symptoms kind of acknowledge that people may have some changes in their lives. They may... um, Because your brain has been through so much and your brain can't help but have a reaction to your trauma. One of the important things to know also about PTSD symptoms is that they were absolutely helpful to you while the trauma was going on. So while people were experiencing what they experienced, they needed to be hypervigilant. They needed to be aware of any triggers. Because they were, un- they were living under a threat. They were certainly living under a threat. So these symptoms were very helpful for people as they were going through their tra- traumatic experience. Part of what happens with PTSD is that your brain has a harder time after the trauma being able to differentiate what is still a threat versus what is no longer a threat. Because you've trained your brain, I need you. I need you to be helping me survive the thing that's traumatizing me. So now that you've taught your brain to do it, you're kind of needing to be like, okay, brain. Like it was, it was fun. (laughs) Particularly if people have been through chronic stress where the, the, brain has gotten used to being at this heightened state of arousal for an extended period of time, it certainly does require a lot more time to have the brain to relearn that not everything that was a threat then is still a threat now. And I, I think that that's something that's really good for all of us who are recovering to, to keep in mind. Um, so before we go, is there anything else that you want to just tell us about PTSD or maybe some words of wisdom that you can give those of us who are recovering? For PTSD, uh, people who have survived trauma, PTSD is certainly something that can get better. Sometimes when we think about um, people who are going through recovery, they want to be back to who they were prior to the trauma. 
may not be that person. But what we can do with treatment is to help you to have a better quality of life now. And people do get better. I will acknowledge that often with treatment for PTSD, sometimes it's not so fun. Sometimes you kind of have to go through some rough things to be able to get to the other side. But people do get better and can go on to have very meaningful, full lives. I think that's a that's a great way to end it. So, Crystal, thank you so much for being here today. I think you've taught us. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure that the listeners have too. Thank you again for having me, Kendall. See ya. Thanks again to Crystal Yarborough for being on the show today and giving us so much useful information about PTSD. If you're looking for more information about PTSD, a great place to start is the National Institute of Mental Health website, and there's a link to that website in the show notes. If currently you are in a violent or abusive relationship, there are resources available to you. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and that number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, the number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE.